Ping ain't his minion, and this is the Doctor Who Podcast. You are, of course, most welcome. It's the 101st episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. I'm Chip. I'm a guest host today. It's going to be great sitting back and talking with Tom about the God Complex. Uh, Chip. Yeah? Chip. Tom isn't here this week. Um, Sorry. Well, it's still going to be fantastic to talk to James about it. We'll get his thoughts about the God Complex and then... Uh, Chip. Chip. Yeah? James did a pre-record. Sorry. So it's just you? Afraid so. That'll be... It is indeed another gold-plated episode of the Doctor Who podcast, and as you may have figured out by that little intro, I have a special guest with me this week because Tom and James have abandoned me. Uh, Chip from the Two Minute Time Lord. Hello, mate. Hello, Trev. Good to talk to you again, sir. In one respect, it seems a long time since Gallifrey 22, but in another respect, it only seems like it was last week. Ah, uh, and, and it only seems like uh, a couple of days from now when we'll be back together in Los Angeles, marveling oh, at the yes. drama and the costumes. Trying to make it happen, trying to make it happen, but it's a long wave over here in Australia to get there, but... Uh... I'm certainly trying to move mountains to get there, but uh, yes. For the meantime, though, we are here today to talk about the latest episode of Doctor Who that has uh, graced our screens, the intriguingly titled The God Complex. Is it a thing? Is it a person? Is it a psychosis? It seems to be all of the above. Let's find out, hey? So what have we got? People being snatched from their lives and dropped into an endless shifting maze. It looks like a 1980s hotel with bad dreams in the bedrooms. Well, apart from anything else, that's just rude. We'll pop out to the TARDIS, also a planet-wide diagnostic suite, and then we'll have a sing-song. Where's the TARDIS? You parked it there, didn't you? What's the TARDIS? Our way out. And it's gone. This is bad. At the moment, I don't know how bad, but certainly we're three buses, a long walk, and eight quid in a taxi from good. All right. Well, since you're the guest, Chip, I would love to... In fact, I am dying to hear what you thought of the God Complex. Hit us with it. Well, I I didn't know exactly what to expect. Uh, listeners who also follow uh, my podcast, The Two Minute Time Lord, may have uh, picked up on a little bit of controversy. I started uh, because I was not enamored of Nick Curran's previous directorial effort, uh, The Girl Who Waited. I had a big problem with a certain issue uh, there, but that's not the episode that we're talking about. The God Complex, I thought, was magnificent. Possibly my favorite of Series 6 so far, for a really strange reason. Most of the time in Doctor Who, you don't get the hand of the director that's just so obvious, you know. Um, there may be great pace and energy, like a Graham Harper episode, but it's still fairly conservative. We had fantastic, uh, odd shooting angles and reflections and rack focus shots, and it was like... It was like the 
director and the director of photography were almost painting with light and images. Um, it was, and married to that, you had uh, a very um, it was it it wasn't over the top, but you had a very emotional story about trust and about what we place trust in, and especially the affection and trust that Amy and the doctor have for each other. And we had that finally had that moment that Stephen Moffat's been talking about in interviews, where the doctor realizes just what he's putting Amy and Rory through, which is particularly apt since the girl who waited, um, and he's just said. I, I can't have this on my conscience anymore. And that was powerful. It was one of the most effective send-offs for a companion we've ever seen. I pretty much agree with everything you say there, Chip. Um, it's, it's interesting you talked about the director, Nick Curran, because I watched this week's episode after having watched The Girl Who Waited, and I said, well, there seems to be a lot of stuff in this that's very, very similar um, style-wise to what was in The Girl Who Waited, especially his use of... I suppose you can't really call it split screen, but it's more picture-in-picture picture type of stuff. Where Sort of mo- um, montage-ish this... stuff and reflections. Yeah, yeah. This, this week he used reflections and all that sort of stuff to get the two faces in the same shot. Last week it was uh, more a sort of a digital superimposer, say the young, younger Amy and the old Amy and the doctor and Amy and stuff like that. But I watched this week and went, is this the same director? Because it just looks so stylishly or stylistically similar. And I looked it up and went, yep. It was Nick. I must admit, I did enjoy this one, mostly because of that scene you described, um, Chip, right at the end with uh, the Doctor basically kicking Rory and Amy out of the TARDIS and saying, you know, go live your lives, be free, basically. It was a really, really powerful moment and a really different moment for Doctor Who. There's a great contrast here uh, between how... I'd say the last companion uh, that the Doctor allowed himself to get so close to, uh, Donna Noble comes a close second, but uh, would be Rose Tyler. And mm. and whether you call it a love relationship or you call them, you call it uh, sort of hung up on each other, you know, whichever way you want to put it, you know, the Doctor told Rose that he could never live the rest of her life, his life with her and all that, but... You, you got the sense that he would never have actually kicked her out of the TARDIS until the circumstance pretty much forced it. In a sense, I guess you could say the 11th Doctor has grown up a little bit once he's, once he's forced to realize that uh, Amy's faith and her own sort of hang-ups with him keep throwing her and Rory into harm's way. He's like, I, I can't do this, and I'm done, and he is. It, it definitely did seem a big shift for the Doctor in this episode because I started watching this story and I looked at the Doctor and went, he's, he's incredibly childish. He he's, seems distracted in most of the scenes, you know, when he's standing there gargling tea, when he's talking to the nurse at one point. I thought, this sounds like a, you know, sort of five or six-year-old playing up, not some thousand-year-old Time Lord. But then we go through a definite change for the Doctor in this episode that he takes the very adult decision, well, yes, I do need to get rid of Amy and Rory because I'm going to end up killing them or killing one of them or hurting them greatly. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting that we go from a very childish, immature Doctor, even at the beginning of the episode itself, all the way through to the end where he's probably making one of the most important decisions of his life. And, of course, we get that illustrated to us you know it's sort of it's it's sort of almost telegraphed to us uh to really make us get the point uh he meets rita 
who, uh, much like Martha Jones, um, a medical person who uh, just is just on the ball, uh, totally companion material, uh, almost too good at it, basically. <laughs> basically, she's almost too competent. You know that she would follow him if he invited her. You know that he would invite her. You know, talk about a real crowded TARDIS. And she falls victim to the rapture or the... Nymon's cousin or whatever we're actually going to call the antagonist in this episode and she sacrifices herself for the doctor and you know you see this coming for Amy in the future you see this coming for Rory in the future you know um and the doctor just you know confronted with it right in his face that's it that's the end of it Well, I think it's time to let someone else in on the fun here. Uh, James, who's, who's away for a couple of weeks, unfortunately, has uh, found the time to send in a little bit of a pre-record on his thoughts uh, on the God Complex. So over to you, James, wherever in the world you may be. Hello, everybody. This is my second week of solo reviews, and Doctor Who appears to be getting better and better in my absence, which is really frustrating because I'm not able to talk to a human about how good these episodes are. And for me, this was superb. The God Complex is probably my favourite episode of this season. It was scary, it was emotional, it was sci-fi, the performances were fantastic. Ah, well, I think I'm done with the gushing now. Now, a little bit more of a measured review. This is how to do a scary standalone story. Now, you look at Night Terrors once again, and it's a shame that I continually referring back to Night Terrors as an example of a poor story. But I'm afraid the two stories we've had since have just showed how bad it really was. What's Doctor Who famous for? Corridors. Long, scary corridors. And I don't think we've had any stories set exclusively within a series of interconnecting corridors, which essentially was what the 80s hotel was. It reminded me a little bit of my childhood as well, in as much as the thing that really scared me about Ghostbusters were the corridor scenes, where they find the Slimer eventually. I've got a very, very big Ghostbusters vibe. Quick word about the direction. Amazing. It's a guy called Nick Hurran, who also directed The Girl Who Waited, and he seems to be able to turn everyday boring and fundamentally quite cheap sets into something that is evocative, atmospheric and fantastic to watch. And you look at the bathroom scene where the Doctor manages to have that conversation with the Minotaur where you've got the water, you've got the mirrors. That scene oozes atmosphere and it's done purely through the direction. And you just know if you had loads of mirrors in an old Doctor Who story, then you'd have probably ended up seeing the cameraman at some point. But it was just done so fantastically in this story. The cast, the guest cast, universally brilliant. The actress who played Rita, I was so disappointed when she died because I was really looking forward to her stepping into the TARDIS at the end of the story and possibly staying with us for next week, but it wasn't to be. But the relationship and the dynamic between the Doctor and Rita was worth watching this episode alone. It was so, so good. The dialogue, the way the lines were said, particularly by Joe right at the beginning, was so creepy. It reminded me of something like a Stephen King adaption. It was just 
oozing with almost horror. It was great to watch. Probably the most intriguing part of this entire episode for me is the Doctor's room. Now, it's only a very, very brief scene, and you see the Doctor opening the door and him say, of course, who else? And you've got the cloister bell banging away in the background. So who is it that he's seen? Is it a future version of himself in the TARDIS? Is it somebody else, one of his arch nemesis? The suspense and the intrigue. Just, just amazing. And continuing on from last week's story where you had the emotional beats played out very, very clearly, Toby Whithouse does exactly the same with this story and arguably slightly better as well. You can tell another very brief scene between the Doctor and Rory where the Doctor accuses Rory of talking about his time with him in the past tense. That is a pivotal exchange and I think that's when the Doctor makes the decision to leave his two companions at the end of this adventure. And I think it may have been the first time the Doctor has chosen to leave his companions rather than the other way round. The angry Doctor, I think, contributed to that decision as well. He was so cross, so furious at Rita's death that the thought of Rory and Amy being killed at some point as a result of them travelling with him was too much to bear. And that made the scene at the end of the episode outside the house just feel right. It wasn't tacked on. It was part of the story. You could see the things that led the Doctor to make that decision happen throughout the main story of the God Complex. Even breaking Amy's faith in the Doctor, which normally, as a viewer, I would think that's almost impossible given what she knows about him. But he does it in such a way by saying, let's see each other for who we really are. I really am a madman in a box, and that's it. And the thing that convinces Amy is the use of her married surname. This was beautifully written, beautifully directed, absolutely enthralling television, and a mention of the Nymon and the return of the Weeping Angels were just a cherry on top of the cake. This was almost perfect Doctor Who for me. So Trev and Chip, I understand it's you who's been dragged back to the camper van and forced to give your opinion on this episode. Trev, it's just a good story. Chip, this is a hark back to the emotional stories that David Tennant's era was famous for. I think Amy and the 11th Doctor are closer. They're closer friends than any of the 10th Doctor's companions, including Donna and including Wilf. But there you are, that might be a subject for debate. So I'm not going to be back for a little while and I may not get an opportunity to put in a report from a far-flung place in the world next week. But if the show continues to improve in my absence to this magnitude, I'm a very happy absentee. All the best and speak to you soon. He makes some really interesting points there, I think, Chip, um, that he uh, says that this seems to be a really, really good way of doing a standalone scary story. Like you, James, I, I do have to make the comparison to its inferior cousin, Night Terrors, that um, both are standalone stories, both are scary stories, but I think the God Complex um, is the scary story format done properly. Yet wonderful use of, I suppose, Doctor Who's signature um, corridors. This was nothing but corridors, pretty much. It was interesting, James, saying there that the Doctor seems to make the decision to... Um, get Amy and Rory to leave the TARDIS when he hears Rory talking about his adventures in the past tense. 
like Rory's already moved on. Rory's already preparing for life uh, beyond the TARDIS with Amy. Right, right. Um, I think I would disagree with uh, James on the and I, and I just talked mentioned this before the record uh, about I, I, I still think that uh, uh, the doctor and Rose are probably um, as close if not closer. Otherwise, I do agree that they are fundamentally close. The doctor has allowed himself to get so fundamentally close and uh, it's interesting that this is a different problem than the problem the doctor had at the end of Journey's End. The last time he kicked uh, companions out of the TARDIS or, and decided to go at it alone it's because he was afraid of turning his companions into weapons. Mm. This time, he's worried about just getting them killed. So uh, it's it's a more direct ownership of their safety. It's a more responsible decision for the Doctor this time around. It's an interesting contrast, and, and it's something I think that um, you can really show as a difference between the 10th and 11th Doctor, where um, you know we're, we're finally seeing a... A doctor here that seems to be less self-centered so i think the 10th doctor was quite vain you know the the 10th doctor was seeing it from the viewpoint of yes i don't want my companions to become like me i don't want them to use of weapons unwilling or not whereas the 11th doctor has taken the more humanistic type of thing he's saying well um I, i'm just worried about their safety i mean i don't care what happens to me um, but I'm more worried about what's happening to my traveling companions. Yeah, and this is the most in tune with himself or his own um, emotions or whatever that we've seen of the Matt Smith Doctor in the last uh, two years. I mean, we've had we've had those we've had those moments. Um, him sobbing uh, with uh, the TARDIS in Idris's body, raging in uh, a good man goes to war against the people who go after the people he loves. Uh, but this sort of brings it all together in a nice uh, in, in a nice package of the doctor just sort of owning who he is, owning what he does. Everybody, when they do something, there's two sides to every person's decision. It's what's the right thing to do and what do I get out of it. In that conversation with young Amy slash uh, adult Amy, the doctor says, you know, that he's bringing his companions with him because, you know, he... It, it, part of it is a lark, and part of it is he wants to be looked up to. And that's absolutely totally true. Um, that's not the only reason, but that's the reason that he chose to emphasize right then to try to solve the problem. Again, an amazingly emotionally intelligent act for an 11th Doctor who tended to be a little more alien and a little more standoffish uh, earlier on. I still think, just on reflection there... Um that there's still a little bit of the 10th Doctor in the 11th Doctor, because I'm, I'm really hedging my bets here. I think when the 11th Doctor looked in his room, he saw himself. I really think he did. I, I think he's still very worried about what he can become, that was something that was a very 10th Doctor trait, that he, he was worried about the path he was taking. Now, I think the 11th Doctor has different worries with regards to his own personal future, but... I really think he saw himself. You know, that's a really strong possibility. Um, the other possibility that I thought of, and I don't think it, I don't, I don't think I'm right, but I might be, was that uh, he saw young Amy in there and saw, well, that doesn't really work, I guess, because of that. That would sort of work against the her appearance in Let's Kill Hitler, facing the guilt or the fear that he'd lead companions to ruin or something like that. But I think, on balance, you're right. I think, I, th I think his nemesis is himself. He doesn't seem very surprised 
by whatever or whoever he sees in that room. So it's someone or something that's very, very familiar to him. And, uh, yeah, it, it would be interesting to see if we actually are going to find out this season who was in the room. I certainly hope so. I mean, there are some te- I mean, there are some teases you don't want to be teased about, like the Doctor's real name, but for something like that, um, yeah, I want an answer. We, we have received a little bit of feedback um, over the last couple of episodes, which, which we haven't played, and, and we should probably address that now. Um, we had a little bit of feedback for the Night Terrors episode, and our, our good friend Glenn over in New Zealand has sent in some audio. Over to you, Glenn. G'day, Tom, James and Trev. This is Glenn here with my thoughts on Night Terrors. Opening sequence. The Doctor was very much played up to look like God. A boy is praying to be delivered from evil and the Doctor answers the cry of the boy alien's heart. Particularly didn't like. The Doctor's uncharacteristic fear. The Doctor is pretty much afraid of nothing. Not convinced that the day would so quickly accept the boy. Had to happen for the story to be resolved. Nice lesson though about the power of acceptance and love and facing your fears, even though that didn't actually work. Little girls laughing and singing are so often used in horror it's getting pretty boring particularly liked. Regarding direction work, loved Richard Clarke's transitions, the darkness in George's room becomes the side of a garbage bin very nice. It was absolutely fabulous that the nearly all-knowing doctor, an alien of supreme intellect, gives up on a Rubik's Cube. Mark Gatiss's script, pretty average really. I did like the twist. Ending on a more appreciative note, though, I did love Mark's writing of our three heroes asking the three residents if anything was wrong. Another note on the script, Mark cleverly gives us a lot pointers to Amy and Rory being stuck in a doll's house, and I picked up on absolutely none of it. In this regard, Rewatch Valley was very good. Murray Gold's music. In the later scenes, I loved Gold's nod to German Expressionism through his music, and I did wonder if this was sort of his way of linking um, the peg dolls of Germany that these Night Terror dolls are apparently based on. Observations. I like that the apartments all look the same, very regimented, organised, patterned, but there is one apartment in all this unity that is not the same as everything else. I do quite like the 11th Doctor and his jammy dodges. It'd be quite fun for this to become like the 4th Doctor and his jelly babies. Well, if Mark Gatiss does carry on after Moffat uh, being a showrunner, he can certainly bring that in as much as he likes. Purcell complains that Bergerac is, what, 30 years old? And here we are watching a show two decades older. Nice play, Gatiss. Line triumphs. Today, we're going to the scariest place in the universe, a child's bedroom. And Rory's, oh no, we're dead. The lift fell and we're dead. Again! Rating. I really did want a standalone episode. I just wish it was better. Bring on more standalone stories. New Who, Season 6 is Episode 9, Night Terrors, gets a Sylvester McCoy. Thanks, guys. Thanks for that, Glenn. I just wanted to pick up on one thing you mentioned in that feedback, and it's probably quite understandable if, if you're a new series fan that you think this way. You say there that you believe the Doctor is a superhero, that he shouldn't be afraid of anything really strongly disagree with that one of the things that makes doctor who doctor who is the doctor is not a superhero he's kind of an everyday man really he's he's just a guy bumbling through the universe in his stolen tardis he is not superman he's he's not batman he is a guy that um solves problems through his wits through his intelligence not through his fists or any sort of x-ray vision or superpowers or anything like that um, I, I think that's one of the things that really draws me to Doctor Who, that it's got a main character that is so different to a lot of other, you know, sort of televised drama and sci-fi. I think I agree and disagree with you, Trev. Um, and this comes from being a, a 
comic book fan from uh, a superhero genre fan from way back up until very, very recently. Um, superhero stories. I think the Doctor is a superhero in that he is immensely powerful, even when he bumbles around. You know, the fact that he always does come up with the solution that's as superheroic as, say, Bat uh, Batman, uh, who doesn't isn't Im- is not immensely powerful except that he's got a brain and he's well trained but i can't make that leap from there to so the doctor should be afraid of nothing that's something that i have absolutely no interest in i got to see planet of the spiders uh finally uh very very recently and although it's layered layered in somewhat clumsily the you know seeing john pertwee afraid because the queen of the spiders uh forces him to walk you know takes control of his body and he knows that he's going to go back into the radiation thing and you know every once in a while the doctor should be afraid of things if not he just becomes this vengeful time god or worse this indifferent time god and why would he why would he go around dispensing justice so uh, I think the Doctor is a superhero, but I also think that he should have plenty of stuff to be afraid of. Our next bit of feedback is from Ian Rennie. Hi, Tom, James, and Trev. This is Ian with some thoughts about the latest episode of Doctor Who, Night Terrors. When I was a little kid, nothing scared me more than Doctor Who. I'm sure everyone has their own story about hiding behind the sofa when the Daleks came on. Partly, I think your imagination is more powerful when you're a kid. Partly, one of the things Doctor Who was always best at was leading with ideas, and scary ideas beat scary special effects every time. Night Terrors was a trip back to my inner ten-year-old. It wasn't completely scary, but it was completely creepy. And the creepiness was done by suggestion, single images, unsettling ideas. Mark Gattis is the perfect writer for this kind of thing. He has a gift for the odd and the creepy, and for letting your mind fill in the special effects for you. The dolls, and the giggling of children, were genuinely unsettling, and the subtle allusions to old horror films were lovely, especially the creepy twin girls at the start, straight out of The Shining. The only real complaint I had about the episode was that it suffered from BBC production values. Things shot on a soundstage or on location looked fine, but the computer graphics were a little bit ropey. Other than that, this was a perfectly great one-and-done episode. It didn't advance the overall story, but it wasn't really meant to. Thanks, guys. Well, the only thing I wanted to say there, Ian, is I totally agree. Scary ideas beat scary special effects every time. And it's a hell of a lot cheaper to do a scary idea than a scary special effect. And our last bit of feedback on Night Terrors is from Martin Thompson. Night Terrors. Right then, absolutely enjoyed this episode. And you couldn't get a much more contrast to uh, to last week's, which is full of the arc plot and big bangs and everything. And uh, this was much more smaller, more intimate, more of a slow burner and everything. Uh, brilliantly directed as well. I thought everything, you know, in the shadows and things appearing and just out the corner of your eyes and they found a new way for the TARDIS to materialise as well. You know, that shot of it um, reflected in the puddle I thought was, you know, one of the best of the series actually. Such a wonderful little shot. You know, the nice little interview piece beforehand and um, Amy and Rory lost in the house walking around that sort of, I think that harked back a bit to the black and white era where they 
spend the first episode walking around the place trying to discover new stuff and all his explanations are getting really good this series as well he comes across as rather a geek trying to say well right what what could have happened here what what could happen i mean it's it's impossible now to think of you know the matt smith era without him you know, once more, Smith um, gets a kid to talk to as well. I, I, no, I didn't think the child was particularly that good in this, although you know, I think Smith should have had a few more scenes with him. But he, he made a good double act with Daniel Mace as well, jabbering on about uh, this and that and a uh, few references, good little references as well. The keys to Doomsday as well, that was unexpected. And what a great episode for a kids, though. I mean, even though George wasn't a normal kid in the end, you know, the fact that you could, you know, can think and suddenly the message will appear to the to the doctor in the TARDIS and he'll come out and save you you know that that must be an appealing thought to a child watching the show even though it, it sort of slips back to the uh, well it harks back to the ninth doctor's era recently the um, the ena- he, oh, he's the enabler you know, only George can face his own fears right I think that's about my lot uh, looking forward to uh, the next couple of weeks as well especially the God, Ple- God Complex okay goodbye yeah totally with you there Martin I did want more scenes with the kid as well I think I even mentioned during the review that I was a bit frustrated they kept cutting between uh you know the doctor and the kids scenes and the father and the landlord scenes I, I would have been quite happy to sort of totally ditch those landlord scenes totally and just spend five or seven minutes focused on this relationship that was being built up between the doctor and the kid i might uh, swap you one there uh more scenes with the doctor and the kid and fewer with uh, Rory and Amy running around in the dollhouse. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be a Doctor Who story if they weren't running around endless corridors, would it? Yeah, but we're getting into classic series, uh, Base Under Siege. Uh, we need a couple more episodes. Let's throw in a few more quarters territory with Night Terrors. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. How cynical is that? All right, so feedback on the girl who waited. Uh, Ian has sent in some feedback. Hi, Tom, James, and Trev. This is Ian with some thoughts about the latest episode of Doctor Who, The Girl Who Waited. This episode was a masterpiece of tight scripting and character. The situation, while beautifully drawn, was almost incidental to the drama of the piece, which was about love, trust, disillusionment, and betrayal. I'm going to be honest, until this episode, I thought of Karen Gillan as an average to good actor. Not bad by any means, but more there for smart one-liners and looking nice than for serious acting chops. This episode turned me around. Even discounting the makeup, which was, by the way, utterly convincing, older Amy carried herself completely differently to younger Amy. She walked differently, she spoke differently... Her face naturally fell in a slightly different shape. The interplay between Rory and the two Amys was a masterclass in how to convey emotions. Arthur Darvel cannot get enough credit for his performance here. The Doctor was essentially incidental in this episode, except for one thing. He slammed the door on older Amy. I knew he was going to, and as he did, I could see in Matt Smith's performance an alien quality that left no doubt that the Doctor is not human. The whole episode was wonderful, but one moment stood out for me. Amy, in her lair, taking out the lipstick, considering putting it on and then putting it away and feeling stupid. Such 
A heartbreak in such a simple scene nearly had me in tears. The only thing I missed that I was looking for was any mention that just as Amy was the girl who waited, Rory had been the boy who waited. He sat outside the Pandorica for two thousand years for her. It would have been nice to have even a passing aside, a recognition that he would empathise with her fate. Still, this was a minor misstep in an otherwise brilliant episode. This was near perfect. Thanks, guys. Yeah, there, there certainly seems to be a lot of fans out there who are very enamoured with um, Karen Gillan's performance or performances in The Girl Who Waited. And, uh, you know, there are certainly many people who seem to be very convinced by her, her turn as a uh, what 50 or 60-year-old girl. I, I, I bought it. Um, I... I I like I like Karen Gillan as an actress quite a bit. I haven't been so enamored of the um, stuff that she's been asked to do, the fact that she had no grounding in series five because her status quo kept getting getting reset uh, hurt her. Um, I thought she was a revelation, an absolute revelation, one of the strongest modern Doctor Who performances ever. In the girl who waited, uh, in, 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 in as her older self and as her younger self. It's interesting too. It's it's um, something I didn't mention when we um, just talked about the god complex there, because you mentioned there about the fluctuating uh, characterization of Amy during series five, and and I kind of got a little bit of that during the god complex because they were structuring it that um, Amy has ultimate faith in the Doctor. So to me, it seemed a little bit more than faith. It it seemed to be a little bit of love there too, and it seemed to tie back to um, Amy's feelings for the Doctor that they were trying to push forward in Series 5. Because I think too, it was accentuated for me in the God Complex because Rory um, was very much pushed to the sidelines when, when they're having that scene in the bar where they're talking about Amy's faith to the Doctor and Rory's just sitting in the background there like a, you know, totally useless. He's, he's got absolutely nothing to do, so... It seemed more about, to me in that scene, um, who does Amy truly love? Who is Amy truly devoted to? And again, it seemed to fluctuate between the Doctor and Rory in this story. So that that, that was quite surprising for me. I think Moffat uh, doesn't mind that. Uh, Moffat seems to have some, just from reading various interviews, he seems to have uh, some, I guess we'll call it, rather more modern ideas about romance and how uh, men and women relate to each other. There are some people who are going to be more comfortable admitting a second um, a second attraction than others, and Amy seems to be one of those people, even though she made a clear commitment to uh, made a clear commitment to Rory. And uh, the doctor's well aware of that and for the most part has 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 honored that. Um, he after after season five, he's he seems to have appreciated the attention, but that's as far as it goes. Cause hey, she's married, but he didn't give them bunk beds for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I I I do get what you mean, but I, I I suppose it might be a little bit old school and old fashioned. It it does kind of frustrate me sometimes when I see Amy's feelings wavering, and. I, I feel sorry for poor Rory, actually. I mean, especially in the God Complex. He just sat there in the background like a lost little puppy because that's that's the way the story panned out because they, they tried to set up the whole thing with Rory not being afraid of anything or Rory n- not not having any great fears. 
And uh, yeah, I don't know. It 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 just made him a little bit um, I don't know spare in this story. But that's that's totally getting off. Um, yeah. Uh, Ian's feedback there, a little d- diversion. So we had Ian there with his feedback, who was very convinced by Karen Gillan's performance. Glenn has sent in his thoughts. G'day, James Tynetrev. This is Glenn here with my thoughts on the girl who waited. The white sets, different time streams, the comfortable friendship between the three characters later to be threatened. Yeah, I like the opening sequence. Apart from Amy and Rory's apparent disregard for the fact that the Doctor is supposed to be finding Baby River, <gasps> these oversights bug me. It's hard to push aside an element such as this, but I had to in order to allow myself space to enjoy the episode. So did I. Tom McGray's script. The nice moments felt forced for me. One example, Rory's fears joke and old Amy's I think that's the first time I laughed in 36 years. I love this sort of thing, but I didn't believe in Gillen's performance. I don't think it's entirely her fault either. It has a lot to do with the placement of this dialogue in the script. Not forgetting this is a one-parter, there's not much time, but I still felt it was too early for this sentiment. Top marks to Tom, however, for some wonderful dialogue between Rory and Amy and Rory and the Doctor. In particular, the exploding moments, wonderfully acted by Darwell. Back to Karen Gillan's performance. It was a mixed bag for me. There were some real great moments and some just average ones. I think she brought nice gruffness into the voice of old Amy. However, she should have been more hard, more bitter. I want to try and be fair and say that Gillan nearly had old Amy down. If this episode had been a double butter, I think that she would have got a handle on old Amy by the end of it. I did like the scene at the end with Rory inside the TARDIS and old Amy outside. Darwell's performance here was excellent. I'll have to say that his performance shone far above Gillan's. I do believe that Rory loves Amy. I still don't believe, even after this emotionally driven episode, that Amy loves Rory. The closest I get to believing this was Amy's line, Rory, I love you, now save me. Nick Hurren's direction. I like the superimposition in the magnifying glass. Old and young Amy. It clearly shows us the talents of the makeup artists. Spot the tricky transition. This is becoming a bit of a game. The TARDIS central column transposed over a door Amy comes through. Marigold's music. Great remixing of his Amy themes. Question. Younger Amy has been rescued, but is she still a week older? Next time, Trader. I hope it's as good as it promises. Rating. I think it's probably one of the better ones for this half season. Out of 11, I'll give it a Christopher Eccleston. I'm sorry I didn't get time to do my particular likes and dislikes. Thanks, guys. So there we have the other side of the coin. Ian thought uh, Karen was fantastic. Glenn, not so sure. There's only so much you can do in an in a 45-minute or so episode, though. I mean, you can't take it so far that you can't bring it back to that end point of uh, both of them loving Rory, Rory having to choose, all that stuff. So I, I, I take his point, but I was convinced. And I, as far as that was concerned, I thought that the script worked well. All right, so we've actually received a little bit of feedback over the last week or two about the whole Hunt for Melody Pond saga. And we've received some feedback from Eugene and Samuel, who, who essentially say the same thing. So we'll, we'll play them both here and have a bit of a talk about it afterwards. Hey, guys, this is Eugene from the Fusion Patrol podcast. I just wanted to drop you a note and take slight issue with something that you said during your review of Night Terrors. Specifically, your complaint that the episode was just too standalone, that you didn't believe Amy and Rory wouldn't be forcing the Doctor to get on his way and go on with the search for Melody Pond. I think you are missing the point. The search for Melody Pond is done. There's really no point in finding her now. They they know where she was the entire time. She grew up with them. They had 20 years, or the better part of 20 years, with their daughter. And if they were to go back and find her now, well, what would happen to them? What would happen to her? What would happen to River? To the things that River had to do to get them where they were 
you see, that's the problem with messing around with these time streams like that. You really, really mess up what cause and effect occurs. But in this case, there's, there's really little more that they can do with her. The most we can do is hope to fill in the period of time between her birth and when she may or may not have been the impossible astronaut in the suit. We don't know. They don't need to hunt for River anymore because, well, I mean, they dropped her off at a hospital to get her mentally fit, and she began her quest to become an archaeologist. So that chapter has been closed. The growing up chapter of Melody Pond has been closed, and it's now just a question of seeing where the last piece is. But I think even Amy and Rory would know not to bother to try to take her and pull her out of the time stream and go do something different. It does raise the question of who were Mel's parents in Ledworth when they were growing up with Amy and Rory. Could it be it was Amy and Rory? Well, that's another possibility. Anyway, congratulations on your 100th episode, and keep up the good work, guys. Hey there, Trevor, James, and Tom. Samuel Lewis of TSCN.TV here. Um, I was wanting to give you guys some feedback, and I know I'm a bit light on this because the Let's Kill Hitler review was a bit earlier after all, but you wanted to know, and it may come up in your review of this episode that just recently happened, like yesterday by the time I'm recording this, of why in the world have they not mentioned where is my baby? It's really simple. Um, Mel was their baby. Melody Pond has been found. And if they were to try to go back and find her as a baby, I'm going to take a Trevor out on this one and go, that would mess with some newly established things in the timeline, which would then mean that there's a possibility they may not meet Mel's in the future and therefore not have her regenerate into the version of River Song that she is now, everything lining up to make River Song what they know as River Song. So, in other words, their baby has been found. They've raised her th their entire life, whether they realized it until the very end or not. So, as the doctor said in that episode, now it's time for her to move on and live her life in her path. So, just figured I'd give you guys some feedback on that, and it yeah, River Song's not resolved, but that part of the whole Melody Pond part, I think, is resolved. Keep up the good work on the podcast, guys. See ya. One thing I wanted to pick up on, guys, that, that you both mentioned, I know we've talked about it on the DWP before. I'm certainly of the opinion that I don't believe that the hunt for Melody Pond should have ended the way it did. Um, many people have said, well, okay, we've seen what happens to Melody. We've seen her grow up as a result of the events of Let's Kill Hitler. Melody and River, they're okay. It's all fine. But that really doesn't wash with me to any great extent because we kind of knew at the end of A Good Man Goes to War that River was Amy's daughter, that she'd grown up, that she was okay, that it was the most current version of River. So why did the doctor go and search for the baby then? It seemed to be the same sort of thing to me. Just because we then learn that Amy's daughter has grown up with them all along, that still shouldn't change the fact that they're looking for the baby. They still knew that, um, that you know, the baby would grow up to be the river they've known and loved. I don't understand why the events of Let's Kill Hitler 
would stop them still looking for the baby that they were trying to find at the end of A Good Man Goes to War. I think it's an effort to move the story beyond that point as quickly as possible. Back when I used to be playing role-playing games, um, we used to have a nice little sub-game of playing with a game master of... uh, Let's uh, let's let's cut off this subplot before it. Go- let's see how fast we can cut off this subplot before it goes any further. And the uh, game master crumples up several sheets of uh, notebook paper in frustration and tosses them aside. The two parents having their baby taken away from them. It ought to be completely, you know, unacceptable. Got to find the baby. You know, their lives would be turned upside down trying to take care of that. And I don't know that that storyline would have worked well in Doctor Who. I think it would have to have been resolved faster than the format would permit it. So what do they do? They decide to hand wave a little bit and say that Amy and Rory actually did sort of actively raise their child um, up to adulthood. They just didn't know it because they were, Mm. you know. So I agree that it is unsatisfying from a parent's perspective. From a 13-episode series that has other things to do and other kinds of stories to tell, it sort of takes care of the problem and it gets rid of it, and then then it moves on. And I don't know that that's completely satisfactory, but on the other hand, Mm. you can't, what, a four- or five-episode story arc to end the series that's about nothing but trying to find baby river baby melody i just don't think that would have worked yeah no um i was thinking the same sort of thing you said when uh you know we you really couldn't have a baby in the tardis it just wouldn't work oh god that's like a very that's like a that's like the worst the worst american sitcom right there <laughs> oh dear. It, it it just seemed a little bit clumsy in the long run i suppose i mean i mean if Stephen moffat's got this wonderful long-term game plan he really seemed like he wanted to have his cake and eat it that he wanted the drama of the baby being stolen he he wanted all that he wanted the beginnings of the search by the doctor for the baby but then he realized well no we can't really have that you know i've i've had my drama i've got my suspense out of that Let's dispense with the whole plot line really, really quickly. And do it in a way that still makes other people be able to say, well, but they did raise their kids, so it's okay. Yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm not, I mean, I, I can see where you're coming from, Chip, but I'm, I'm still not 100% satisfied story-wise with that. that um, oh, I'm not, know, they, I'm they, not either. I just think that he, I, I, he didn't leave himself a lot of other options, I don't think. Yeah, I, I, I suppose there wouldn't have been a lot of other ways to do it, but... Um, if you realize that to begin with, then why do it at all, I suppose? But yeah, it's it's difficult because really at the end of the day, you've got to get away from the whole, we can't have a baby in the TARDIS. When you get on the route of one of your main characters expecting a child, then you've got to deal with that child in some way that they don't end up having to set up a creche in one of the spare rooms or anything like that. And uh, writing Rory out of the script by having him just in the back room all the time with the baby while uh, the Doctor and (laughs) Amy run around. I can't come and fight the Sontarans because, you know... Melody needs change. change. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear, yes, it would be soap opera Doctor Who, wouldn't it? My goodness. goodness, And I know how much you love that, Trev. Oh yeah, it's 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 my favourite part of Doctor Who. I've always said so. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for your feedback. Keep it coming, everyone. We love it. 
feedback at thedoctorpodcast.com. Please, guys, if I can just ask you, um, if you're going to be sending in audio, try and keep it to a couple of minutes only because that guarantees it's the best way of getting it on the show. If you're going to send in written feedback, um, please don't write paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs. One last thing. Speaking of feedback, it always amazes me about you, our wonderful listeners, when you send in feedback to us and because we can never really expect what sort of feedback we're going to be receiving. Now, after my offhanded comment last week about there being no lighthouses in Australia, we have received more feedback on that particular <laughs> issue than we have pretty much all year on televised Doctor Who. Guys, where are your priorities? As soon as I make a light-hearted comment about no lighthouses in Australia, alluding to the fact that Australian skippers know how to drive so we don't need them, you guys have sent in the emails. You've overloaded the servers with your, this is where all the lighthouses are in Australia. Trevor's totally wrong, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this, Thank you, guys. This is a demonstration <laughs> that pedantry is a global scourge that must be stopped. Oh, yes, yes. Obviously, there's a lot of crossover between lovers of lighthouses and lovers of Doctor Who. Just not in Horror of Fang Rock, apparently. <laughs> I will say in my defence, though, I did know that we have lighthouses in Australia. I, I visited a couple down our east coast. Um, I was just trying to make a light-hearted glib comment about the fact that um, Australian boat drivers must know how to steer as compared to um, UK boat drivers. But uh, apparently... <laughs> that joke was lost, and you guys started scribbling about this is where all the lighthouses are in Australia. So thank you very much, guys. <laughs> oh, bless us, Doctor Who podcasts and our listeners and our shared overwhelming need to be literal. <laughs> so you don't have to deal with this sort of stuff, Chip. You've, you're you in and out in two minutes. You don't talk about lighthouses. You don't talk about any stuff like that. You're focused. You're to the point. Why, thank you, You don't sir. have to deal with people writing in stuff like that. We well, do. Well, I, 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 think I, I think I can speak for, well, myself, in saying that I'm glad that you have to deal with the lighthouses, so I don't. So let me officially say all correspondence on lighthouses is now finished. Done and dusted. Fantastic. Trevor, it was a lot of fun coming over. I really appreciate you uh, having me back on. Indeed, I should get you back more often because you're a lot tidier than the other two boys. You, you don't leave your chip packets lying around in the corner. You actually wash up after you've had a cup of coffee. It's a, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air here in the DWP camper van to have you, and, and I thank you for it, and I thank you for joining me today. Loads of fun. Uh, if, you, uh, if your listeners haven't heard my podcast, uh, check me out at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com. An excellent listen, as always. One of the best Doctor Who podcasts out there, apart from this one, of course. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Chip. And um, if James and Tom ever decide to uh, leave me in the lurch again, then uh, I'll get you on the phone and uh, get you back to talk more Doctor Who, eh? Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Awesome, guys. Well, we'll see you all next week. Keep that feedback rolling in and uh, Cyberman next week. Woohoo! That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.